Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, because we are here this morning. You have brought us here in this place. And Lord, we have read your word. We have sung songs of praise. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our hearts, open our hearts and our minds, that we may hear your word this morning. And we pray all this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Throughout the ages, the Psalms has been used for most urgent times. Personally, it's one of those books in which uh, whenever we are going through different difficulties and trials, they have been a book of comfort. And this morning, we're actually starting a new series that's called or entitled Psalms for the Summer. And so we're going to be going over the uh, next few weeks, we're going to be going through the Psalms and just going through them and allowing them to speak through us. And so the title for this morning's message is Finding the Good Life. These Psalms have been used by Jewish and Christian traditions alike. And they have been used during uh, liturg- uh, weekly liturgies or in different ways or forms. Untold to members during the ages, they have been repeatedly turned for encouragement and comfort in moments of crisis and despairs. But do we understand the Psalms? Given that the origin is intrinsically rooted in the ancient Near East that goes all the way back to the late Bronze Age, and that in certain respects is quite alien to us as modern people. Many of us possibly turn to the Psalms because it's the easiest book to read. Sometimes we're trying to get back to our reading, or maybe we don't know exactly how to pray, but maybe the Psalms can guide us into how to pray and communicate with God. And to just kind of get a little bit of context this morning, the Old Testament is broken down into three groups, three different parts. The law, the prophets, and the wisdom or the writings, the wisdom literature, respectively. And there within the writings is that we find the Psalms under the wisdom literature. The Psalms is a collection of poems or of worship songs that they were sung throughout Israel's history. There are songs that refer back to the time of Moses, the judges, the kings, and the exile. Do you remember when the Israelites or the people of God were taken into exile, into captivity by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians? No longer were they able to go back to the temple and to worship. They were, in a sense, removed from going into the temple and from worshiping God. And so the Psalms are like a temple on wheels, if you will. It is a part of the books where you read these Psalms and they connect you like if you were in the temple with God. There is no single author for the Psalms. David is listed as having 73 Psalms. A musician named Asaph is listed with 12 Psalms, and the sons of Korah composed 11 Psalms. 
But to be super honest, we have also Solomon and Moses that composed some of the Psalms. But the truth is that many of the Psalms are anonymous. The truth is that scholars believe that Ezra or some other Jewish leader compiled the Psalms into existing order during the period of exile. And so the book of Psalms is divided into five books. Uh, Psalms 1 to Psalms 141, 41, it's one book. Psalms 42 to Psalms 72 is the second book. Psalm 73 to Psalms 89 is the third book. Psalms 90 to Psalms 106 is the fourth book. And then Psalms 107 to the end of each book is the last book. And each part that each book ends, it ends with a brief doxology of praise to God, which is inserted at the end of each book, ending with Psalms 150, in which the whole book as a whole is a psalm of praise and adoration to God. And so it's so interesting, according to um, Robert Alter, the Hebrew Bible translation and commentary, the, the division of the five books were clearly an emulation to the five books of Moses, of the Torah. So you see these five books of Moses, the Torah, from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. And then you see the Psalms, that they're emulating the Torah. Five different books also within the book of Psalms. The Psalms are a way for God to teach and to train his people. The purpose of the Psalms is to remind us that worship is at the heart and at the center of everything and that we can talk to God directly. When we are experiencing moments of praise and joy, when we are experiencing worship, when we are experiencing adoration, when we are experiencing repentance, when we are experiencing frustration, when we are experiencing confusion, when we are longing, when we are experiencing a season of lament, whatever it may be, we can come and pour out our heart to God. Because the reality is that although the Psalms were written long, long ago, the human heart remains the same, longing and searching for the good life. If you walk through any bookstore, even though most of those are obsolete because we are living in the digital era, and, or you do a, bas- a basic Google search, or if you listen to the radio or listen to your favorite podcasts, you will find that we are all searching for the keys on how we can live the best life possible. But this search towards happiness or living the good life isn't something new. Answers abound, raging from having the right job. If you have the right job, you will be happy. If you have the right diet, if your body looks beautiful, if it looks better, then you will be happy. If you go on a vacation, then you will be happy. If you, if you choose the, the right partner in life, 
then you will be happy. If you have a hobby that really that you like, then that will make you happy. And the list goes on and on and on. We are simply overwhelmed and saturated by all the possible choices of the things that could possibly make us happy. All pulling us to make a choice. But the reality is that through time, we lose patience and we move on to the best new thing. That's the reason why every year the iPhone has to come up with a new iPhone. Because we lose interest from our Model 13 and now we want a Model 14. That's the reason why we lose interest on our vehicle and maybe we want to trade up and we want to get another car that is much better because we easily lose interest on the things that we have. We as humans have always yearned for something better, for something with purpose and with meaning. And this is nothing new. Greek philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle have also wrestled with the question, what is the good life? What is that one thing that will produce happiness? What is the one thing that if I had it, I would be completely happy? Also referred through eudaimonia, which is this concept of ideal conditions of human existence, including virtue, wisdom, knowledge, and purpose. These, these things, if I had these, then that will produce the good life. That will bring true happiness. But more than ideals, more than philosophies and morality, Scripture presents to us another path that brings forth fruitfulness and fulfillment. And that's the reason why we're here this morning. Because we know that there is something better and grander out there for us. And that is precisely where the book opens up as we study the book of Psalms. That's exactly where Psalm 1 starts. Psalm 1 is like a prologue to the book of Psalms. It's like an introduction, if you will, that tells us what the whole book is going to be about. And it goes something like this. Open your Bibles with me to Psalms chapter 1. Psalms chapter 1. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Right off the bat, we see that Psalm 1 is a reflection of two different ways of being human. There is a person who is like a blossoming tree, that is like a life that is being planted by the stream that is often equated to the righteous person. But then we see in a stark contrast that there is a person who is like the shaft that is blown away in the wind. And they are often referred to as what? Wicked, ungodly, sinners, mockers, or scornful people. But the poem begins, interestingly enough, with the phrase, 
Blessed is the man who. But what does that even mean to be blessed? Well, according to Tim, Tim Mackey from Bible Project, when we see the word bless in our Bibles, it could be translated as one of two Hebrew words. There's the word Baruch, but there's, that describes a person who is experiencing God's favor in abundance. This usually is translated as blessed. But Psalm 1 does not begin with the word Baruch. Psalm 1 begins with a different word, and it's the word Ashrei. And this word Ashrei is, refers to people who say, that, uh, it's, it refers to about a person who is Baruch. So it's another way to experience or to describe a desirable and a good for someone who is experiencing God's blessings. Ashrei is a juxtaposed with the destruction of the wicked expressed in the last word. It's a psalm to bed, to be destroyed with the destruction. Interestingly enough, the way this poem is composed, we see that the words in the, in the beginning of the psalm, the, the first word in this psalm begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it ends... The last word in this, in this uh, poem ends with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's so organized. And it's like the psalmist is saying, hey, that person over there, that person over there has the good life. That person over there is blessed. And, and that good life results from three choices. The man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, number one. Number two, that doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Number two. Number three, and that doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Other versions translate that as mockers. But notice with me the progression here. The man goes from walking to standing to sitting. This suggests that there is a progressive engagement and identification with sin. It describes the way in which people depart from God that intensifies in a threefold way. Because sin has a way of creeping into our lives. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It is a progression. And once we sense that we can get away with it, we continue on and on and on until we are dipped deeper and deeper in. It's a progression from a movement towards becoming stuck. And there are three words here. Ungodly, sinners, scornful mockers. Three destructive ways of being human that you are trapped in. So the ungodly is that kind of person who is morally backwards. They think that evil is good and that good is evil. Have you experienced people like that? Have you met people like that, that now what is good they call bad and what is bad is good? Sinners are a word uh, that refers to missing the targets. So imagine that you have in front of you, you have this huge target place and you have an arrow. And as you placing the arrow, you're ready to shoot in the target. But every time you shoot your arrow, you are missing the target. And so what is the target? The target is loving God. 
So every, sin is equated as someone who misses the target continually. That is what sin is described. So the target is loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So sin is failure to love others well. And then lastly, you have the scornful. You have the mockers. It is someone who can't even appreciate the goodness and, or the beauty anymore. They're so jaded by all they can do and, and they show contempt for anything that is not like themselves. Have you ever met someone that any idea that you bring to the table, they automatically shoot it down? Have you ever met a person who any idea that you bring down, it's, they're always negative about it? They always say, oh, that's not going to work. Why do you even try it? That's not, that's not going to work. That is described as a person who is a mocker as someone who is scornful, that they're so jaded by everything that only they're sitting there or standing there in front of you with a face of contempt because they are not having it. So the invitation for us is to stop and to meditate on how our choices are slowly shaping us over time. Stop. Meditate on how your choices are slowly but surely shaping you over time. But the psalm goes on. Go with me to verse 2. And it says, but, this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The positive alternative here is a lifestyle that is described And verse 2 is a parallel which expresses that is centered in the word Torah. In his law, it says, he delights. The Torah, meaning scripture as a whole. Not just the five books of Moses, not just the Torah, but the whole Bible as a whole. He says here that, the, that he meditates. It is God's teaching and wisdom. And notice with me the sentence. His delight is in the law In the law, he meditates. Instruction and delight do not often go together, at least not in modern thought. How can you delight and then have positive instruction? But the, in the biblical view, in the worldview, God's instruction is delightful in his relationship between, it's like a man and a woman coming together. It's often described in the same Hebrew word. So there's a parallel action here in this verse that refers to an ongoing meditation on God's instruction. I meditate on what I delight. And the more I meditate, the more I delight. These two lines are like an infinity loop that the more I meditate, the more I am delighting. And the word that is being used here is the word Hagah, which is The word to meditate or to utter or to murmur the word of God. So you, you, they use it to, 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 to it's, it's used as to describe the sound of a, of a pigeon that is cooing or a bear that is moaning as it's eating its food. But for us, for us humans, it means to quietly recite the words of Scripture 
out loud. Remember, this is in a culture where it's an oral culture where scripture was recited out loud. And so it means to recite scripture out loud in a continuous audible uttering the word of God in your mind as a way to focus your attention so that these words become part of you. And that is the kind of meditation that leads to a good life, apparently. But let's keep reading. Verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Such continuous immersion into the word undeniably leads to a life that can be adequately described only through imaginary. So the psalm is painting for us a picture of a tree or a plant. It's like a metaphor of a powerful image to connect the listeners and its readers to this poem of a physical world. Earlier in the poem, if you recall, there was a planting of yourself that leads to ruin. But through meditating on God's word, on God's instruction, you plant yourself in such a way that brings life. And I think for us, it's a little bit difficult to think about this because anytime we think in our culture nowadays, when we think about meditation, we always think about Eastern meditation or yoga, or something like that. And that's not what the scripture is talking about. Because Eastern meditation is about emptying yourself from the world. You just want to get rid of all these things so that you can be ready for the universe. But Christian meditation is not like Eastern meditation. Because instead of emptying yourself, what you're wanting to is to be filled with God's word. You want the Lord and his word to fill you in completely in such a way that you can be molded and changed by his words. And notice with me all this Garden of Eden language that is being presented. A tree growing by the streams of water, abundant fruit, leaves that never wither. And, and this is so interesting to me because this is a predominantly dry climate. Remember, this is in the ancient Near East. A tree that had to, be pl- had to be planted near a promising location that is close to a water source in order to thrive and to be fruitful. If a tree was planted in the desert with no water source, it would not, it would not thrive. It would not give fruit. So this is a reminder for all of us of the Garden of Eden where the people of God were to become a foretaste of the world made new. So what is the psalmist saying? Edwin, you're just talking and talking and talking. But what is the psalmist saying? That if we adopt the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures, we become a tree of life. We begin to taste abundant life for ourselves and others. And that's why the psalmist says that whatever he does shall prosper. Which links us back to the opening line. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. The word ashray. Why is the man blessed? Why is the man happy? Because God's wisdom leads him to good life. And that is the end of the poem. Or the first part of the poem. 
But then there's the second part of the poem. Remember that I told you that this was a contrasting poem between the righteous and the wicked? This is a way of pointing us to the second part of the poem, which starts in verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but they are like a shaft, which the wind drives away. So notice with me this contrast of one kind of person that is like a tree that's firmly planted, full of fruit, while the other person is like an empty husk of wheat that flakes off and blows away. Here's a simile here for those of you who are English grammatarians. A simile of a wind-flown shaft underlines the lifeless futility of the ungodly using the well-known imagery connected to the judgment and the terminology. What is it saying? The way of doom, of total failure from both a legal perspective, but also from a religious perspective. So that's the reason why the psalmist says in verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Remember, the, med- the meditator decides not to stand in the path of sinners. The meditator decides not to, to be with, with, with the uh, company of mockers, but delights in the law of the Lord. So there is this contrast now with the wicked and those who are unable to stand when God brings justice. Verse 6 says, For the Lord or Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This final sentence underscores the reality where these two paths lead. And so the end is how we begin. Choosing between two paths, two ways of being human, one that leads towards flourishing and another one that leads to withering ruin. One that leads to life and another that leads towards suffering. Both destinies are connected to their respective ways, which represents one's movement either towards God or away from God. Psalms 1 teaches us that God is calling us to do good in the world to meditate on the scriptures so that we can be like a tree of life and a blessing to the world. The difference is really on what we meditate on. For you see, scripture is designed for a lifetime of meditation, reading and rereading scripture slowly. God's instructions and allowing them to guide all of our life's choices. And this reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So you ask, how can I live a good life? 
How can I be rooted in God's abundance as I'm going through my trials, as I'm going through tribulations, as I'm facing adversity in my life? How is a psalm from the ancient Near East applicable in my life today? When we adopt Jesus' teachings and we read the scriptures and we write them in our hearts, and we have them constantly in our mind. They point us to the type of person that we want to become. And they guide us in all, all our life choices. And when we do that, then we become like a tree of life. And so the invitation for us as modern Christians living in the 21st century is to choose the path of righteousness to meditate in his word, to let it hone into our hearts in such a way that we can live and breathe these words, to be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water, that over the seasons of life, whether we're experiencing a seasons of highs or a seasons of low, we are planted next to the living water of Jesus. And therefore, we produce fruit regardless of the seasons the fruit of the spirit of love of joy of peace of long suffering of kindness of goodness of faithfulness are seen in our lives and that's the only way that i know how to live a life that's leaning towards jesus that's finding the good life that God may stir in us a desire to commit ourselves daily to Him, continually and faithfully, that we may know that we can find the good life by seeking God constantly and earnestly. Because the reality is that we don't know what's out there for us. There's so much things. We have so little to zero control over the things that are out there. But if every day, We consecrate ourselves to God. We ask for the Holy Spirit. We ask for wisdom. We ask for God to lead us, to guide us. Then, and only then, we would be like a tree of life, planted in the rivers of living water. And that, my friends, is the good life. Our Father in heaven, The words that we have sung this morning are reminders of who we want to become. We want, Lord, to follow Thee in every movement of our life. In everything that we do, Lord, may You take hold of us, that You would be foremost, the first person in our life in all of our decisions, and all of our choices, and that most of all, we can continually spend time with you searching the scriptures and just building that relationship with you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.